1: ESET connects telebots and black energy. Court hacks highlight the risks of mixing IT and OT. Talos finds a new Android Trojan. Facebook purges more inauthentic sites. This time, they're American. Data privacy regulation is trending in both Sacramento and Washington. The EU will consider cyber sanctions policy. NATO looks to cyber IOC. We'll learn about emotional intelligence from Compassionate Coding's April Wenzel. And alleged sim swappers have been arrested. From the Cyberwire studios at Datatribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your Cyberwire summary for Friday, October 12, 2018. Ukraine's SBU security service warns that various government agencies in Kiev are under cyber attack again. No attribution so far. ESET reports that Telebots and Black Energy, and therefore Industroyer and NotPetya, are linked to the same threat actor. They found that the XML backdoor deployed in April used the same infrastructure that Telebots used to deploy NotPetya. And they concluded that XML itself is an evolved version of the Indestroyer malware Black Energy deployed against sections of the Ukrainian power grid. ESET doesn't explicitly attribute the operation to anyone – But, as ZDNet points out, they don't have to. Western governments have by consensus already attributed the operations to the Russian state intelligence services. ESET's results simply provide more confirmation. Observers look at cyber attacks against the ports of Barcelona and San Diego and conclude that mixing IT and OT yields unacceptably high risk. The Barcelona and San Diego incidents appear to have been largely confined to business systems, but port operations were affected too, if only through a commendable abundance of caution. Attacks on industrial infrastructure have often begun by compromising business networks and moving from there to operational technology. That's what seems to have happened in the attacks on the Ukrainian power grid. Sometimes it works the other way around, as it did in the target breach, when a compromised HVAC contractor enabled hackers to pivot to point-of-sale systems. Cisco's Talos Research Group has found a new Android trojan, Gplayed. It masquerades as the Play Store, using the name Google Play Marketplace to further the imposture. Gplayed is both spyware and banking trojan. Talos notes that the growing preference on the part of many developers to bypass established app stores in favor of other distribution channels, and they're looking at you, Fortnite, will tend to give bogus sites like g more plausibility and currency than they might otherwise enjoy. In any case, be sure you know what you're downloading. Skepticism over Bloomberg's Chinese supply chain attack story continues to rise. Some sources have walked back their statements to Bloomberg. Other observers point to an implausibility. If Chinese intelligence services really had ceded the supply chain as effectively as the story suggests... Why would they engage in all the noisy hacking they've continued to conduct? Facebook has purged more inauthentic sites. In this case, the 559 pages and 251 accounts the social network took down were for the most part American. The problem, in Facebook's view, is their coordinated inauthenticity. The company admits that the inauthentic content is often indistinguishable from legitimate political debate, and is trying to develop that distinction on the basis of behavior as opposed to content. The inauthenticity specified is money-making, clickbaiting people into ad farms. There is some irony in the notion that a social network would find making money from advertising suspicious, but this is more cognitive dissonance than contradiction. The Google Plus API issues revealed earlier this week when Google announced that it would be winding down the service as a commercial failure and that the app developers in fact had access to Gmail user data continue to prompt growing interest in developing national regulations for data privacy in the U.S., especially coming as it does so soon after Facebook's recent privacy issues. Three senators asked Google yesterday why it decided not to disclose the privacy issues back when it discovered them. This seems to foreshadow deliberations over more extensive privacy laws. California has recently passed a sweeping data privacy law. and industry would probably be more comfortable dealing with a single set of federal regulations than it would with 50 state regimes. New York's financial sector security and disclosure regulations have had a general effect on the sector and seem to have been relatively well assimilated, but California's law is likely to have much more sweeping and problematic consequences. A study published this week by PwC found that, of companies surveyed, only half thought they'd be able to comply with the California Consumer Privacy Act of 2018 by the time its deadline kicks in during 2020. The UK and Netherlands intend to push the EU to develop more effective sanctions against cyberattack. Both countries have taken a hard line against GRU operations against targets on their territory. In the case of the UK, there's continued and determined outrage over the lethal Novichok nerve agent attack, as well as over what British authorities perceive as a growing threat to critical infrastructure. The Netherlands expelled GRU officers over what it characterized as an attempt to hack into the Netherlands-based Organization for the Prevention of Chemical Warfare, the international body to whom the UK referred its Novichok complaint. The sanctions the two countries wish to see prepared are seen as being directed principally against Russia and China. Reuters says the Five Eyes and a few friends, notably Germany and Japan, have agreed to closer cooperation against Russian and Chinese cyber operations, and NATO expects to reach full cyber operational capability by 2023. And finally, some alleged sim-swappers have been arrested. The regional enforcement allied computer team, called React, a task force composed of various California police departments, responded to a complaint from a company that had been the victim of sim-swapping and alerted the feds to the suspects and their whereabouts. The Secret Service collared Joseph Harris and Fletcher Roberts Childers in Oklahoma City. They're both in their early 20s and are, of course, entitled to the presumption of innocence. Childers hasn't yet been charged, but Harris, who goes by the hack doc in criminal circles, has. Harris is suspected of having stolen some $14 million in a single cryptocurrency hack. And joining me once again is Jonathan Katz. He's a professor of computer science at the University of Maryland and also director of the Maryland Cybersecurity Center. Jonathan, welcome back. Uh, we had an interesting story come by. This was uh, from Fast Company. And the title of the article was MIT's Tool for Tracking Police Surveillance, a Cryptographic Ledger. Uh, this sounds like something that is right up your alley. Uh, what's going on here?
0: This work is relevant to uh, the broader discussion about providing law enforcement access to encrypted data. Hmm. And uh, this specific proposal isn't so much looking at how exactly that access would be provided, but about providing uh, accountability, public accountability for that access. So basically what the uh, researchers propose is that uh, you would have some kind of system set up between law enforcement and the judicial system that would uh, place certain values on a blockchain whenever law enforcement requested access to some encrypted data. And the idea then would be that uh, the public could look at what kind of requests are being made, how often these requests are being made, and even down the line, after the investigation might be over, they could even potentially look at the data that was requested uh, and get a sense of how often this kind of thing is going on.
1: So really leveraging uh, that transparency that is inherent in in the blockchain, uh, I suppose in this case, we will hope for the greater good for law enforcement.
0: Yeah, that's right. So I think uh, a lot of people are concerned about providing unfettered access to law enforcement to, to access encrypted data. And part of their concern, I think, is not that they mind law enforcement going after real criminals, but they mind the idea of, of, of law enforcement being able to target whoever they like for no particular reason. And so providing accountability like this might actually uh, make people more comfortable with the idea uh, of giving law enforcement access.
1: And what is your your take on this? Does the underlying uh, science seem to make sense? I mean, from a cryptographic point of view, is this is this a workable solution?
0: I, I think definitely, yes. I, I think, uh, again, if you're comfortable with the idea of providing access at all, mm. then uh, the idea of providing accountability in this way is actually a really interesting one. And I'm all for the idea of providing uh, greater accountability in government in general. So that, that does seem like, uh, like a reasonable approach.
1: And what about from, from a privacy point of view? What's the flip side here? What, is there, are there things that people could have concerns about, of making this sort of uh, information available?
0: Well, I think people are always concerned about whether or not law enforcement and the judicial system would actually use the technology. So for example, you could imagine that uh, if law enforcement has the ability to go after encrypted data, then they may not contact uh, a judge and request permission, or they may contact a judge, uh, and the judge may decide that in this particular case, they don't have to report it, uh, making that decision on their own, kind of an extra legal decision. And so people who are concerned about Uh, government infringement on their privacy might just as well be worried that the government won't use the system as it's it's been proposed.
1: Right. The blockchain doesn't do you much good if if the folks actually aren't using it.
0: Yeah, that's right. And it's not so easy to prove that somebody failed to use the system properly.
1: Right. Right. All right. Well, it's interesting. Uh, Certainly worth keeping an eye on. As always, Jonathan Katz, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. My guest today is April Wenzel. She's the founder and CEO of Compassionate Coding, an organization that aims to combine the effective practices of agile software development with a focus on empathy and the latest in positive organizational psychology. She's a veteran software engineer and technical leader with more than a decade in the software industry.
2: So I was a software engineer and I led engineering teams in uh, various startups in Silicon Valley for about 10 years. And I noticed a lot of problems with the industry, Uh, things like um, lack of uh, diversity, lack of other women around me uh, in my work. I also saw teams failing due to just unproductive conflict happening in code reviews or just on the team in general. Uh, And I saw that some of the products we were building were having a negative impact on the world. Um, You know, we see this with like Facebook using data in potentially unethical ways. And my realization was that all of these are really symptoms of an underlying problem, which is that in tech, we really haven't been caring enough about human beings. And so that's what I set out to solve with uh, my company, Compassionate Coding.
1: Now, uh, what you talk about is uh, bringing emotional intelligence and ethics to the tech industry. Uh, I think most of us are familiar with uh, the notion of ethics. but Can you you describe to us what do you mean by emotional intelligence?
2: So emotional intelligence is a term that was popularized by Daniel Goleman. And the idea is that we talk about You know, IQ, our intelligence quotient. And there's this idea that there's another uh, aspect of the way our mind works, and that's the emotional side. And that there's something like that we could call the emotional quotient it's our ability to uh, interact in the world uh, while understanding and managing our own emotions. And understanding and interacting with the emotions of other people. And so the field of emotional intelligence includes uh, a lot of different types of skills, things like having confidence, having motivation, having persistence and resilience. Those are kind of personal aspects of emotional intelligence. Uh, And on the other hand, communication skills. So having empathy, being able to persuade people, things like that in the social arena.
1: So, where does the tech industry fall short with this? Do, and, and do you have any notion for why it is that way?
2: Yeah. So it, it, that's a funny question because uh, the tech industry is nearly just devoid of emotional intelligence, um, yeah. almost across the board. And uh, I think there are reasons for this. So I think you know relevant is that uh, Linus Torvalds, the creator of Linux, uh, recently came out and said that he doesn't really have uh, a lot of empathy or understanding of emotions of other people and that his behavior has hurt others. And so it was a big deal that he came out because he is like sort of a figure that's been representative of the caustic uh, nature of the tech industry, people in the tech industry. And the fact that he came out and admitted that this has had harmful effects on people uh, was a big deal. And this just happened recently. And so I think what happened was... In the early days of the tech industry, some of the first people that got involved were these sort of very, they had very low emotional intelligence uh, skills um, and they became representative of what made for a good software engineer. And so they started hiring people who were just like them. And so it kind of created this idea that to be a good software engineer, you have to be like these people. You have to not care about human beings. You have to care more. You have to interact with people in the same way that you interact with a machine in this very direct, rational way where there's no room for any emotions. Uh, We have this sort of monoculture in tech where everybody's kind of falls into this category. Now there's some exceptions, but they are just exceptions. And it's because we've been excluding uh, all these people. So I think that it's, sort of a systemic thing because once these people came to power, it's like now we have this pattern matching that happens in tech interviews where it's like, huh, she doesn't seem technical because she doesn't remind me of, you know, all these male software engineers I've worked with who, you know, were poor at communication and, you know, communicated in this certain direct way or whatever. And so we've been filtering out a lot of people. And so it's just you know the problem just gets worse and worse. And so that's that's what I'm trying to help remedy.
1: What, what about uh, the, this notion of the rock star? I, I don't think coddling is the right word, but maybe accommodation where, you know, you can have someone who is an amazing coder. And because of that, uh, they don't have to worry about how they dress when they come to the office or even, you know, basic uh, grooming skills. Like <laughs> because of their skills, we're going to let them uh, be antisocial and, uh, and and unsanitary in the workplace.
2: Yeah, so uh, I really, really uh, don't like this idea of the rock star developer and and how it's come to be. And I think that it's harmful because no matter what kind of code this person's producing, they are affecting the people around them, meaning that if they're being, you know, abrasive in code reviews and insulting and uh, abusive to people around them, they're like sort of their behavior is toxic, then it's hurting the productivity of everyone on the team. And you know, it's not just me kind of just claiming that this is the case. I mean, even Google, who for many years has been the sort of standard of only hiring for quote, technical ability and like treating people like robots in the interview process, Uh, Even they came out recently with a study. They did this Project Aristotle where they found that what makes for an effective team at Google, uh, none of the top five were anything about technical ability or performance that would fall under the rock star category. The top thing was psychological safety on the team. And everything was all sort of people stuff. It was other stuff like structure and clarity and things like that. There was nothing quote, technical in what makes for an effective team at Google. And so I think that that's really, uh, really important there to note, which is that I think we've just been assuming that, oh, this person's such a great developer. But if that developer doesn't have good empathy, too, for the users, then they're probably not actually producing the best product. Maybe they're producing the most, quote, efficient code, but that doesn't necessarily mean the best product.
1: There's this impulse that I see. Particularly in the tech world, and I think uh, I think it's amplified on Twitter in particular. (laughs) And it is sort of the the dog pile where where someone says something that someone thinks is is stupid or technically incorrect or or imprecise, and uh, here comes the snark, you know, and here comes and everyone piles on and um, and I just when I see that I, I think that is it's not a helpful impulse, but it also I don't think it's healthy.
2: Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. It's like, you know, sometimes, especially early in my career, I was afraid to post anything like any code online, because I saw it happen so many times where if you make one little mistake, people just rip you apart. And like when to say, like, Oh, well, you're just incompetent. And yeah, that's really toxic. And I think that that you know, we there's talk of imposter syndrome that people experience. Mm. And I think that that develops from this really hostile, competitive and like judgmental, um, aggressive even culture that we've created.
1: So what is your advice to uh, organizations? You know, if, if I'm trying to build a team, I, I'm, I'm, I've got a startup I'm working on, I'm an entrepreneur, or even just improve the team that I run in a lar- larger organization, what are some of the things that I can do to uh, enhance everyone's emotional intelligence, to make sure this is something that we're paying proper attention to?
2: Yeah. Well, I think one thing is just recognizing the importance of that in a very uh, clear way in the company. And what that means, that might mean uh, including it in the hiring process, because a lot of times, you know, we'll put people through these rigorous, like coding tests, which I don't think is a very good way to interview people in the first place, because it's not very representative of the actual work that they're going to be doing, which is much more, usually much more collaborative and everything like that. Uh, So I would say, you know, de-emphasize all of that and emphasize the person's ability to communicate well in the interview. And again, that doesn't mean that they're not awkward or something like that. It just means that they, they seem interested in what you're saying and that they're able to convey ideas and they're able to understand what other people might be thinking. And, uh, you can get at that by asking about past places they've worked or past projects they've worked on. And so I would say you have to update your hiring processes to, uh, Factor in empathy and emotional intelligence. And also you're promoting practices, you know, who gets, uh, who gets promotions, who gets rewarded, who gets the bonuses. Um, because there's a lot of work that goes on in software teams that isn't credited. Like if you're the person who talks to designers and talks to other people and you do that well, that's part of your job. It's not just about how many lines of code you produce or something like that or how many tickets you close. It's really, there's a lot of stuff that happens that isn't credited well. And so I think that if you're gonna value this on the team, that's an important part. Um, And again, like doing some sort of training, whether it's through videos or something like that or bringing somebody in, but uh, providing resources to help people grow these skills, because that's all they are, are skills that can be grown. That's
1: April Wenzel from Compassionate Coding. You can learn more at the Compassionate Coding website that's compassionatecoding.com. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at the Cyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa Smart Speaker too. The Cyberwire Podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Vaughn, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. That's cyberwire.com slash survey, and share your feedback now. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight A.I. with A.I., the best A.I. protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful A.I. engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust Plus A.I. to prevent ransomware and A.I. attacks. Experience your world secured.